This morning we turn to the gospel according to John, John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I'm going to read the entire chapter this morning. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth a stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher, and he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher. And seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white, sitting the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that he had spoken these things unto her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, 
he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Now our text is verses 24 through 29. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen me and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the text that we consider this morning finds its significance and application in the 29th verse. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen me, and yet have believed. That's the specific point to which this scripture will call our attention in this appearance of the risen Lord. The risen Christ appeared some ten times after his resurrection. And we do well to bear in mind that each of those appearances has its own peculiar significance and purpose. These appearances all have as their common purpose to serve to establish in the minds of the apostles the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead in order that they might be witnesses of that risen Lord and proclaim that resurrection to God's church yet to be gathered. But besides that single purpose, there are significant differences in each of Jesus' appearances. He appears in different ways. And as those to whom he appears have different dispositions and attitudes concerning the reports of the resurrection, he speaks differently too and with a different purpose in each situation. 
to Mary Magdalene, for example, who wanted to have with her the earthly Jesus again, whom she had served before his death, Jesus appeared in a way so as to teach her that he is indeed risen indeed, but never to be with her in that sense again. And so Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. With the two travelers on the road to Emmaus, Jesus found two men who wanted to understand that amazing event that was reported, and they could not. They had no place for the cross in their reasoning of of these events. So Jesus gave them instruction from the scriptures and fit the cross to their understanding before revealing himself to them as their risen Savior. That's why I say that the significance and application of Christ's appearance to Thomas is set before us in verse 29, and more particularly in the words, Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. That speaks of us. And therefore there's application to us. Jesus first appeared to his disciples as a group when Thomas himself was absent. And that's how this text, verses 24 through 29, begins. There's the little conjunction but that ties this text to the appearance of Christ to the other disciples on the evening of the first day of the week. And so we read, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Now it's a full week later. And there apparently had been no further contact with the risen Lord during that week. But on this second Lord's Day, the first day of the next week, Jesus, or Thomas, is present with the disciples again, and the Lord appears the second time to this group, this time especially for Thomas's sake, and in a manner adapted to Thomas's need. So although we must see the exalted Savior in this text, we are compelled to see him especially through the eyes of Thomas. I call your attention to this text, therefore, under the theme, Christ's appearance to Thomas. We notice, first of all, an unbelieving disciple. Secondly, a glorious appearance. And finally, a greater blessing. We speak, first of all, of an unbelieving disciple. But I want you immediately to understand when we speak of Thomas as an unbelieving disciple, we must be careful to maintain a very important distinction. Thomas was not an unbeliever. 
He was unbelieving with respect to the resurrection of the Lord. But he was not an unbeliever. He was not of the world. He was a child of God, righteous in Christ. And because he was not an unbeliever, it's important to look at his present spiritual condition in order to understand why at this time he was unbelieving with respect to Jesus' resurrection. Then still more, we need to look at the character of this man and try to understand his nature insofar as that's revealed to us. Then we may gain a better understanding as to his mindset with respect to these reports of Jesus' resurrection, which which he refused to believe. Scripture doesn't tell us a lot about Thomas. But as is often the case, the little that Scripture does reveal gives us considerable insight into the character and makeup of this man. His name was Thomas, also called Didymus, and that surname Didymus means that he was a twin. For the rest, we know almost nothing about his background. There are a few passages, however, that reveal something to us about the kind of man Thomas was. In the first place, Thomas was characterized by a deep-seated, heartfelt love for Christ. It's rather unfortunate, even improper, that Thomas's name has forever been associated with doubting. And so it's become proverbial to speak of anyone who refuses to be convinced of something as a doubting Thomas. But the fact is, the Bible reveals Thomas as one who had a deep love for his Lord. Indeed, so fervent was his love for Christ, he showed a willingness, if need be, to die with him. So when Jesus made clear in John 11 that he would return to Judea, to the home of Mary and Martha, even in spite of the threats against his own life, Thomas said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And he went, even in the face of that threat of death. He went because he loved the Lord Jesus. In the second place, however, that remark of Thomas recorded in John 11, verse verse 16, also reveals something of Thomas's nature. Thomas was inclined to a rather pessimistic outlook. If there was any possibility of calamity in the picture, Thomas was sure to find it and to focus on it. And although expressive of his love for Christ, Thomas's expression in John 11, verse 16, is also evidence of that pessimistic outlook and was even likely spoken in that tone of voice, that tone of resignation. Let us also go that we may die with him. 
because this was spoken after Jesus had said that Lazarus' death was the occasion for the glory of God to be revealed. Thomas ignored that word and was entirely absorbed with the thought of Christ's certain death at the hands of the enemy. And so we see Thomas was rather inclined toward a pessimistic, a bleak outlook on life. He wasn't quick to see the bright side of things. And more particularly, he was not quick to lay hold of God's promises. And then thirdly, we find concerning Thomas, his character, that he wasn't one easy to be convinced or swayed in his opinion. We read of him again in John 14, right after Jesus gives the comforting instruction to his disciples in the first four verses, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. And to these words, Thomas responded, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? He wasn't so quick to take Jesus at his word, Thomas had to have a concrete explanation of Christ's promise. So seeing something of the character of of the man, we're now ready to, to consider the state in which we find him after Jesus' death in the first few days following Jesus' resurrection. The text makes a point of saying that Thomas was one of the twelve. We know, of course, as Luke writes, that the group was now down to 11. Judas Iscariot having betrayed Jesus and by this time having killed himself. But Thomas is numbered with the 12. And yet he's not with them when Jesus first appears to them. And the reason seems to be strongly implied by what we are told of his reaction to the testimony of his fellow disciples in verse 25. So deeply affected was Thomas by the death of his Savior that he had separated himself from the other disciples, not seeing any reason to be with them anymore. Again, Bear in mind the deep love and commitment which he had shown toward Jesus. And then it's not so difficult to understand his despair in direct proportion to the eagerness of his hopes and the zeal of his anticipation for the kingdom to be established in Christ would follow the depths of his despair. So, that what we see in him must not be misunderstood as as indication of spiritual indifference. 
Not at all. Still more, remembering his character, we see that Thomas was inclined to be rather extremist in whatever he observed. He wasn't one necessarily to deal with facts. He was inclined to draw conclusions. The moment he would see something, Thomas would draw a conclusion. And he would cling to that. So that when he saw Jesus taken away to be crucified, Thomas's conclusion was, this is the end. That doesn't mean Thomas didn't believe in a final resurrection. He didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. And he didn't believe because Jesus' death obscured his vision. These were days of hopelessness and despair for him. He saw no reason, therefore, to gather with the eleven anymore. He would cling to his sorrow alone. That was wrong on his part. That was even foolish. On the one hand, it's quite natural we like to cling to our sorrows alone and and bottle it up within ourselves. But that's never helpful. That's even harmful to ourselves. In times of sorrow and despair, we should never separate ourselves from the people of God, but seek them out. Thomas should have been with his fellow disciples, but he would cling to his despair alone. After Jesus appeared to the other disciples, the brethren sought out Thomas. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But notice the reaction from Thomas. He doesn't say, I doubt it. He doesn't show himself merely the doubting Thomas. He doesn't say you must be mistaken. He says, I don't believe it. He refuses to believe their word, their testimony. He said unto them, except I shall see in his hand the the prints of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. It was as if he was thinking, they say they've seen him. Why should I be asked to believe different evidence from theirs? I was just as dedicated a follower as they were. Why should I be left as the only one who has not seen the risen Lord Christ? You see, he didn't like to be left to the testimony of others for the ground of his believing. And until he has seen concretely the risen Christ, in fact, until he has seen the nail prints in his hands, and has been able to touch those nail prints and the wound in his side, Thomas refuses to believe. 
when all is seen and considered, therefore, we find that Thomas was in such a spiritual condition from which he had to be delivered before he could believe in the resurrected Christ. And that desolate and destructive spiritual condition was exactly this. Thomas would base his faith in the resurrected Christ on one thing. And that's what he could apprehend with his own senses. He would limit the scope of his faith to what he could see of the Christ. Beyond what he could see and touch, he wouldn't believe. Mind you, the problem isn't merely that Thomas had to see in order to become a witness of the resurrection. That was true of all the disciples. None of them believed when they were first told of the resurrection. But the peculiarity of Thomas, also as pointed out in the instruction of Jesus in verse 29, was that Thomas said, I will not believe anything beyond what I can see and touch. Now we need to understand something here. Thomas's position was impossible. That's why I say he had to be delivered from that spiritual condition before he could believe in the resurrected Christ. Because you can never obtain the resurrected Christ and his benefits as long as you enclose faith within the boundaries of your own natural senses. Our risen Lord is not to be found in the scope of our natural senses. He's not here. He is risen. He's risen to the other side of the resurrection. And therefore it's not what we see that counts, but what we hear. And it's not what we hear with our natural ears that counts, but what we hear with the ears of faith. It's the word that we must have. We must have the Word of God from the other side. The Word of God in Christ. Of that Word, we must partake by faith. And faith is worked by the Holy Spirit through the Word. It was apparently in concern for their brother Thomas that the disciples remained in Jerusalem for this full week after the Lord's resurrection, you remember the Lord had told them through Mary Magdalene that they should go to Galilee and that he would appear to them there. It appears that they continued to to try to meet with Thomas throughout that week, finally persuading him to join them for fellowship on the first day of the following week, and as the disciples were gathered together again, following Christ's resurrection on that eighth day, 
the Lord again makes a glorious appearance, showing himself also to Thomas. And by this glorious appearance, the resurrected Lord will lead his unbelieving disciple beyond that which he can lay hold of with his natural senses. Christ appears to Thomas. As he had with the other disciples the week before, so came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Thomas could see him. Thomas could hear him. And while the Lord doesn't cater to Thomas's unbelief, he does meet the weakness of his disciple in order to put that weakness to shame and to cure Thomas of it. So Jesus met Thomas's demand to come within the scope of his senses. Let's remember the risen Christ must come to us if we are to see him and know him, because he didn't rise to return to his earthly place in life. He rose beyond the grave, through the grave, on the other side. He arose with an incorruptible and heavenly body. But in mercy, he comes to us. In mercy, he appears to Thomas within the scope of Thomas's earthly senses. But he did so in such a way that Thomas knew he had risen from the dead, that his resurrection was unlike any other. The Lord made Thomas understand that he was still in the same Lord, with the same body, but he has been glorified. And so the Lord made Thomas understand that he was different from what he was before. The Lord revealed that to Thomas, as he had to the disciples the previous week, by coming into the room while the doors were shut. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst. He was no longer subject to the natural laws of time and space. But the Lord goes beyond just appearing to the sensory perception of Thomas, for the Lord turned directly to Thomas and made clear that he knew exactly what Thomas had said to his fellow disciples. Then said he to Thomas, Reach forth thy finger, and behold my hand, and reach forth thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. The prince in his hand, the apparent opening in his side served to establish beyond any question that the same Jesus who had been crucified was now risen from the dead. Did Thomas touch him? No. He was completely cured of that unbelieving rejection of, of Christ's resurrection. He no longer sought to verify that resurrection. Having seen and heard his Savior, Thomas no longer needed that touch. 
the reality of the resurrection was made perfectly plain to him. And the result we see in verse 28. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. That's a glorious confession. Especially when we understand that Thomas makes it in connection with his new faith in the resurrected Christ. Remember, he had refused to believe in that resurrection because it was meaningless to him. When therefore Thomas now proclaims, My Lord and my God, he confesses that this risen Christ is now, is indeed the realization of all that he had hoped for. Indeed, Christ was Lord in a way, in a far greater sense than Thomas would ever have dreamed possible. This Christ is the Messiah whose human nature had brought about the realization of the kingdom of God who was indeed the hope of Israel. But his lordship is of such great power, not even death could hold him. He is king and lord also over the power of death and the grave. His dominion is absolute and all comprehensive. There's nothing that lies outside his power. That's not to say that Thomas immediately understands the spiritual and heavenly nature of Christ's kingdom. That will only come after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But he confesses that Christ is the risen Lord. But he doesn't stop there. My Lord and my God, he says. He identifies the risen Savior with the everlasting God, the unchangeable Jehovah. Jesus is indeed Jehovah's salvation. Which is to say, Thomas understands and believes that Christ's victory over death and the grave was possible only because he is also Almighty God. Jehovah has come to his own in Jesus Christ, his Son, to realize his covenant and to establish his everlasting kingdom. And don't overlook the personal element of Thomas's confession of faith. Because the purpose is that we make this confession our own. He says, my Lord and my God. He's the one who died for my sin. Who paid for my guilt. He has obtained for me the victory over sin and guilt and the grave. And that he is my Lord means also he has brought me out of the darkness into his marvelous light 
and has made me willing to live unto him and is continually leading me to that perfect enjoyment of which he has obtained. And this is true because he is my God. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. He alone could bear that infinite wrath that we justly deserve and could merit for us everlasting life and glory. What a tremendous blessing is mine to see him, so said Thomas. He's no longer speaking from the viewpoint of his earthly senses. He's speaking by faith. Faith kindled by the word which the risen Lord had spoken to him. But the Lord points to an even greater blessing. Jesus saith unto him, Because Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Yes, Thomas and the other disciples were blessed. That Christ appeared to them and revealed to them the wonder of the resurrection gospel was indeed a great blessing for them. And for the whole church through them. But the risen Savior points out there's an even greater blessing than that enjoyed by Thomas and the other apostles at that moment. That greater blessing is the blessedness of believers throughout all generations. That blessedness that we enjoy, not even having seen the risen Lord with these earthly eyes, is far greater than the blessedness of them who saw. Perhaps we have difficulty understanding this. I dare say there's a Thomas in a Thomas in most all of our hearts. We want to see. We would at times limit our faith so that we can lay hold of it with these earthly senses. And from that perspective, we might think, wouldn't it have been nice to have been in that room when Jesus appeared? Sure wish I could have been there. Would have made the the truth of the resurrection so much more meaningful Well, beloved, may have been nice. I dare say it was even a thrill for the for the disciples, the other disciples especially, who had seen Jesus the previous week and had spent the week thinking about it, then to have him appear again. But to say that being there would have made the truth of the resurrection so much more meaningful is a delusion. Why? Because faith, 
that's based upon the senses is necessarily limited to the senses. The disciples saw the risen Lord. They were given to see the fact that Christ had risen from the dead, but they didn't see the significance of that wondrous event. They still did not understand the spiritual significance of that resurrection that they would see only through the Spirit who alone could reveal to them the Word of God. Because that resurrection is not a matter of the senses. It's not a matter of the hearing and the seeing and the touching. It's a matter of faith. The faith that I now have in the risen Lord is a far greater blessing. Because by that faith, we appropriate the resurrection. We lay hold of its blessed significance for us. We cannot see the resurrection. The resurrection is the word of God to us. What we can see is really limited to Christ's death. That alone is what was historically observed by men. And we've considered his torment. And we've witnessed through the eyes of history the terrible crucifixion of Jesus. That's all that can be seen. And as we stand by the cross, viewing it through the eyes of history, we can never get by the question, does death after all have the victory? It's only when the Lord comes out of that death and says it is finished that we receive even an inkling of hope But there's no assurance until God himself says, I have approved the work that my son has accomplished. I have given the victory to my only begotten son. That's the resurrection. And that we do not see with our earthly eyes. That's God's word to us. Only when Christ, the Lord, came into our hearts and made us partakers of his resurrection, only when he spoke his word powerfully to our hearts did we see the resurrection and the power of that resurrection. And therefore, blessed is that faith that takes hold on the things not seen. Then we understand that the resurrection of Jesus means that because he was perfectly obedient in our place, he satisfied God's justice. He established our righteousness, our justification, and merited for us the right 
to everlasting glory. But again, we cannot see that with our earthly senses. We lay hold of His Word by faith. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. But there's still more to that greater blessedness. The resurrection of Christ is our life, even now. And also that you could not possibly see by having Christ appear in the flesh to you. We must have His Spirit and Word. Only when the Lord speaks and by His Word brings that resurrection life into our hearts do we see the meaning of the resurrection. And how indescribably great is the blessedness. When we look around us, all we see is death. Surrounded by death. What a dreadful sight is that which we see with our earthly eyes. But when we lay hold of His Word and believe, we hear once again the words that Jesus spoke to Martha. And we see them in a much more glorious light. For He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in Me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in Me shall never die. Believest thou this? Amen. Gracious Father, we thank Thee for the resurrected Savior who is ours. We thank Thee for giving us to Him an eternal election, but redeeming us by Him from the bondage of sin and death. And we thank Thee, Father, for giving us His life, life everlasting, a life in which we may live with joy even in the midst of all earth's sorrows. For Jesus' sake, amen.